Uh, so good evening, everybody. My name is George Gray. I'm the pastor of River Life Fellowship Church in Copenhagen. Uh, I've been pastoring there for, uh, the senior pastor there for about the last 13 years. I was the assistant for four years before that, and the 11 years before that, I was the music minister at, at uh, Faith Fellowship Church in Watertown. I uh, had the privilege to work with people like Tim Grant, some of you might know him. Um, he was actually my guitar teacher and, and uh, uh, first pastoral mentor. Yep, great guy. Uh, I actually have his acoustic guitar. It was given to me after he passed away, yeah. And um, so I got saved 28 years ago um, on my 20th birthday. And uh, when I got saved, <laughs> uh, before that, I was a practicing witch. Um, that's, what, uh, that's what I did. Uh, I had a, uh, uh, an Irish-Scottish background, and my, some of you may realize that. I'm about the size of a yard gnome and got nice red hair, so it all works out good. <laughs> Um, you know, so I had this heritage and I started to explore it when I was in college and, uh, growing up, my only religious understanding was that we were Protestant cause we weren't Catholic. That was about as far as it got uh, in the house. And, you know, that was, that was all I knew. So I started looking into other things. And when I got saved, I had a, a profound interest in the question, why, when it came, when it came to the Bible, um, I don't understand why, um, but two weeks after I after I came to know the Lord, I felt a call to go into ministry, and I have always been a curious person, but not curious as to like how to necessarily how I wanted to know why things work. I was a, I was a kid who you would bring something home and I'd take it apart, you know. I didn't necessarily know how to put it back together, but all the parts were laid out were laid out very neatly, you know. Whether or not it worked again, I didn't care. I just wanted to know how things worked. So when I started looking into the Bible, it immediately began to make sense to me. I don't know why I call it. I just refer to it as, as, as the blessing of the Lord. God gave me a supernatural understanding of how Scripture fit together. And I didn't, I'm not talking about Scripture recall. I'm talking about how the Old Testament fits with the New Testament and being able to link things together. It just made sense to me. But one of the things that I did as an early Christian is I started, if you, if you lead someone to the Lord and you start them on the path, one of the worst things you can do is start them in Genesis 1.1. You know, and, and they start reading through and they get through Leviticus and they're thinking, good Lord, how, where am I supposed to get a cow? <laughs> you know, how am I supposed to explain this to my parents? I'm going to butcher this thing in our front yard. There's going to be blood everywhere. This is going to be crazy, you know, because you don't know. But that's where I started. And the, the, the thing that has always stuck with me is in the beginning, God created. Now, I've always been a science geek. My whole life, I've always been a science geek. In seventh grade, I remember having a conversation with my science teacher. We were living in Germany at the time. My parents were military. And we were reading through um, evolutionary geology. And we had gotten to a chapter, and it said, rock layers are dated by the types of fossils that are found in them. And about two chapters later, it was fossils were dated by the rock layer they were found in. Now, I was smart enough at the time to go, Wait, what? That, that, so I, I, brought it to, I brought it to her and I said, this, this, I didn't know why. I just said, this does not make sense. This does not make sense. And during the time I was there in sixth grade, our science textbook said the earth was 3.5 billion years old. I was like, wow, that's really cool. In seventh grade, our textbook said the earth is 4.5 billion years old. And I thought, how long was that summer vacation? Right. <laughs> This is crazy. And, and what you learn is that science is constantly changing. It is very rarely 
stable all the time. There are very few things in the scientific world that stay the same all the time. Most of those things are naturalistic in nature, and they and when it comes to the theory of evolution, it is so chaotic and so crazy, I don't even know why it's it's still a valid theory. And honestly, most people in the scientific community, when they're being honest, don't know either. So when I became a Christian, the first thing I began to study was those first five words. In the beginning, God created. I wanted to understand what this meant. Because if God created us with words, then God also created science. He also created natural law. He created the periodic table. He created everything that we know about biology, biochemistry, astronomy, genetics, all of it. He created all of it. And we should be able to see his fingerprints in that creation. And you can... The problem is, it's not a, It's not that it's not taught. It's not allowed to be taught anymore. Now, how many of you here are old enough to, to remember evolution and creation being taught side by side in, in the public school system? Some of you are like, I'm not raising my hand. I'm not admitting that. <laughs> I've run into a ton of people up here where that was the case. You were allowed to do that. It is illegal in New York State to do that today. You'll lose your job as a, as a teacher. So in the public school system, what I'm going to, some of the things I'm going to share with you tonight, they, are, they, are, they will get you fired if you are a science teacher in the public school system if you start to bring these things forward as factual evidence for what would be called intelligent design, which is horrible. So you've got to find creative ways around this. And so when it comes to Christianity, um, now throughout tonight, throughout tonight, I'm, I'm going to ask a few questions. If you answer the question, I have a DVD here and five answers or four answers books written from Answers in Genesis. I, I actually partnered with Answers in Genesis uh, quite a number of years ago, and I'm a reseller for their stuff, and I give things away all the time. I actually don't carry the stuff to really sell it. I just carry it sort of the resources. So I have some of these, and if you're interested in them, just answer a question, and you can pick whichever one you want. So, but when it comes to Christianity, there's, there's a, there's a section of scripture that we, we all are probably familiar with, but it is incredibly important for us. And it's first Peter three fifteen. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope, uh, uh, for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now here's a cool thing. That term meekness and fear for most, most of the time, what you're, what you're told is we're supposed to give a defense for the faith with humility, with, 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 with kindness towards the other people, with meekness towards the other people, until you actually study the Greek and you find out it's not what that's saying at all. It's not what it's saying at all. It says, give a defense for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The meekness and fear means the way you treat the word of God. Not the way you treat the person that you're talking to. You shouldn't be a jerk. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. But you handle the word of God with meekness and fear where you're unable and unwilling to compromise. So when someone says, what do you think about, pick a controversial topic today. You go, boom, and you tell them what the Bible says. Whatever happens, happens. Because we treat the word of God with meekness and fear. But it says, always be ready to give a defense. Now, the Greek word there for defense is apologia. It's where we get our word apologetics. And it means a reasoned explanation. Meaning, as Christians, we are told, we are commanded in Scripture to understand our faith well enough to explain it to somebody else. Has anyone, anyone ever come to you with a question and your first thought is, where's pastor? <laughs> or your answer is, you should come to church. 
or one that sounds good, but is really kind of useless to people who don't know the Lord. Just trust Jesus. Let me ask you something. If I were to say, I know your life is falling apart, but just trust Bob. What's your first thought going to be? Who's Bob? I don't know Bob from Tom. Why would we think they know Jesus? They can't trust Jesus. They don't know Jesus. We're supposed to make the introductions. That's the idea. But we can't if we don't know how to explain our faith. So we need to understand this process and, and how to share it. And one of the most important things that I think Christians can learn in an area of defense is, is creation apologetics, at least at a fundamental level. It's because your entire faith is, is grounded in those first five words. Because if in the, beginning, in the beginning God created is a lie, then you have to ask the question, what else is a lie? If I can't trust the word of God from the beginning, why would I believe I can trust it at the end? Because he didn't say, in the beginning, I might have created or I may have evolved you. I'll never tell. That's not what he says. He says, in the beginning, I created you with my own hands. What are other scriptures? I formed you in the womb before you were born. I've known you. I am the beginning and the end. What about the beginning of John? In the beginning was the word. He was, he was the word. He was with God. All things were created through him. Doesn't sound like evolution to me. But here's the problem. Most of the time, and I want, I want to be careful when I'm, when I'm talking about this, because I, I tend to be, well, I'm blunt. It's just, just, just the way it works, you know. Um, anyone who's, who's been, uh, you guys been in the church long enough, uh, I'm not known for candy coating things. I, I'm just not very good at it. You'd think I would be, because I baked for a long time, used to make cakes, frosting is a really nice thing, but I don't put it on anything. <laughs> I prefer to just put it out there. Here's what I've learned over the last 28 years. Almost all the churches that I've come in contact with are afraid to teach this topic. They're afraid to teach the idea of apologetics, and they don't teach how to understand your faith. They teach denominational doctrine. This is what it means to be a good fill-in-the-blank. When you go to um, uh, Bible Foundations classes, what are you taught? How to be a good blank. The denomination. That might be good, but let me put something out there really clear. Your denomination can't save you. You don't stand before God and give an account for your life. Lord, I've been a Mennonite my whole life. I don't care. Lord, I'm non-denominational. He also says, you're also non-saved. In the Protestant church, um, uh, there's a couple of Catholics. I've got a lot of Catholics in my family. And uh, I, I tell you what, this is something that I've said from my pulpit a lot of times, and it tends to raise some eyebrows. Said there's as many saved people in the Catholic Church as there are unsafe people in the Protestant Church. People go, huh? I don't like that. No, because we learn a system. We don't necessarily learn about God. So the idea of apologetics is really simple. Apologetics is more than just a witnessing tool. It is a process of thought. Okay, it's a process of thought. It's the application of logical thought and consistent reasoning within an argument. It's being able to explain something and not just burping up something that you heard in church. We all love witty one-liners, right? I love one-liner jokes. I think they're fantastic. I love one-liner witnessing tools. I think they're great. They don't go anywhere because someone is bound to ask another question. What do you mean by that? I don't know. We didn't get that far in Sunday school class. 
Well, that was useful. But you see, witnessing to people is, is about more than just memorizing Scripture, isn't it? Memorizing Scripture is good, but I know a lot of people have Scripture memorized, but they don't know how to use it. You see, wisdom is knowledge rightly applied, right? Not just knowledge. Now, before I became a, uh, became a minister, I was, uh, I was a chef. I went through culinary school. I'm actually, I'm actually a classically trained chef. And one of the things you learn over the years is people who come out of culinary school and most colleges for vocational or any kind of physical training, when they come out, they're convinced they know everything about that industry. And they don't have a clue. They know nothing. They have knowledge. They lack wisdom, right? How many of you guys have worked with people in your jobs? They might have some knowledge, they got no wisdom, and you just watch and wait, and eventually they figure it out, and you get to laugh and laugh and laugh. We need to learn how to not only understand the Word of God, but learn how to apply it correctly. Now, in terms of creation apologetics, there we go, it's a process of thought regarding the natural world that begins with the authority and reliability of God's Word. That's really the question that we're talking about. When you talk about creation and evolution, you're not necessarily talking about the battle of science. Well, we'll get into that, but there is that, that is such a deep issue. It, will, it would literally take you decades to get through a lot of this. I've been doing this for almost, almost 30 years now, and I'm, I'm at the point where I can pretty much hold my own against almost anybody. There's so much there. It would be impossible to try to cover it all tonight. But when you look at the natural world, and you look at evolution and creation, it is not necessarily about the science. It's about the authority of God's word. And the question you have to ask is really simple. Is God's word God's word or not? Is the Bible God's word or is it God's suggestion? Is it his inerrant, timeless word to man or is it man's word about God? Because if it is not absolutely his word, then we all might as well just go home because now you get to pick and choose whatever you want. You can make it mean anything, literally, and people are trying. But if it is, then it means what it says. It says what it means. And we should believe it as it's written. It's that simple. So, here's my first question that I already answered right there on the screen. Oh, that was really smart, George. Nice job. <laughs> what is currently the fastest growing belief system in our world? Scientific atheism. Or scientific, uh, or scientific naturalism. It is the belief that the physical world is all there is. There's nothing after death, right? That exclusively natural processes explain everything. It basically looks like this. You came from nothing. You exist for no reason. Your life has no value other than what you add to the collective. And when you die, you're done. It's just, there's just darkness waiting for you. I hope you have a great afternoon. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I just don't. I think you've got to have a lot of faith to be an atheist, to believe that there is nothing waiting for you afterwards, so you might as well just have all the fun you can before you die, because that's all there is. What a horrible thing to believe and to try to force on people. But that's what's going on. That's where our world is going. This is what the public school system is teaching on a regular, bar on a regular basis. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's just what they're teaching. That's okay. As long as we teach our kids the truth, everything will be fine. But let me show you a few people here. This is Josh Harris. Remember him, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye. How many of you were forced to read that in youth group? 
Earth. Wow, I just dated myself. Okay, so I feel better. Thank you. Yeah, so he wrote this book, and like every like 20-something-year-old girl was like, this is exactly how I'm supposed to date. This is amazing. <laughs> Am I wrong? Exactly. Uh, atheist. Uh, John Steingard, frontman and, and lead guitarist for the Christian band Hawk Nelson, worship leader, songwriter. Some of his songs are being sung in church today. Currently an atheist. Remember the band Gunger, husband and wife worship leaders? They're atheists now. Bart Campolo, son of Tony Campolo. How many of you know of his ministry? Worldwide. Atheist. Abraham Piper, son of John Piper. Militant atheist. Didn't start that way. means they're like aggressive. Charles Templeton. Anyone ever heard of him? Who's next to him? Two people over. That's Billy Graham. Here's something most people don't know. When Billy Graham got started in evangelism, he was partnered with this young man named Charles Templeton. Everyone agreed Billy Graham was okay. Charles Templeton was the man. He was the one that everyone believed was going to go around the world. He was going to bring the gospel to the world. This guy was on fire. In 1948, as their ministry began to grow, Charles Templeton decided to go back to college and get his degree because he needed credentials to validate his ministry so he could go farther in ministry. While at college, I believe it was Princeton University, uh, he took classes in biology and specifically evolutionary biology. By the time he left school, he was an atheist. Think about that. One biology class. Now, it wasn't that evolution was so convincing. It's that his Christian counterparts had no answers to the question. What do you think about this? How do we answer this? No one had any questions. Here's a couple quotes from him. Said, should one continue to base one's life on a system of belief that for all its occasional wisdom and frequent beauty is demonstrably untrue? Now, he's since gone on to be with the Lord, but before he died, he wrote this book. Farewell to God. My reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. The man that was believed to have trumped Billy Graham's ability to preach the gospel message walked away from his faith because of evolutionary thinking. All the people that I've shown you walked away from their faith. They began to doubt the word of God. They began to doubt the authority of the word of God. And that doubt started because of evolution. They were confronted with evolutionary dogma and they couldn't find answers to the questions of life's origin. The people in the church didn't have answers, and usually when they would ask the tough questions like, how could a good God allow pain and suffering? Well, there's an- you can answer that question. It's actually not that difficult. It's a little longer than I have time to do, for, uh, to do tonight, but, you know, hey, it's okay. We'll you know, get to it another time. What about evolution? What about cavemen? What about dinosaurs? You know, I, I've known Christians in my life that will tell, tell their kids that dinosaurs never actually existed. Because they don't have an answer for their kids and they don't want their kids to walk away from the Bible. I got news for you. Lying to your kids is going to do that a whole lot faster than talking to them about dinosaurs. There couldn't have been dinosaurs on Noah's Ark. Why not? You ever seen an egg? They ain't that big. 
This is, there are answers. They're available, but we have to go looking for them. Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? The atheist community claims to have the answers to the questions of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Those are the four questions that make up everybody's everybody's worldview. Where did I come from? Does my life have meaning? How do I know the difference between right and wrong? And what happens when I die? Those four questions make up every religious belief. Most of the time, we can't answer them because we fail to answer the very first one. Where did I come from? You see, because if you came from a cosmic accident, can your life have meaning? No. There is no meaning in life other than the meaning, other than than whatever you supply to the collective. There's no purpose in you. You're an accident. You're complicated pond scum. That's horrible. But if you were designed, then you're designed for a purpose. Anyone ever designed something by accident? Go out in your garage. You just throw yourself at a pile of wood. All of a sudden, a rocking chair arises. That was amazing. It's not how it works, is it? There's a design. But see, the problem is, if you have a design, you have to have a designer. Now, in this argument, there's basically two sides. There's the Darwinian paradigm, which says the spontaneous generation of all life from a single common ancestor via uh, via undirected mutation and natural selection, meaning no reason, no rhyme for anything. You are literally a cosmic accident. In this view, life has no meaning, no purpose, no value. If you've ever wondered how people can be so heartless about things like abortion, I want you to think about something. They might not be heartless. They might just be being consistent with their worldview. If their worldview is that life has no value, then I want you to think about something. Unwanted kids are a tax on the system. They use up resources. If they're only going to be left in the hands of the, of the, of the, uh, of, of the people, we're going to be forced to take care of these kids, might as well get rid of them now. Get rid of spare cats, get rid of spare kids. You see, there's no difference. Because they're just as much of an accident as anything else. So just get them out of the way now so the rest of the people can live a good life. Because this is all we have. Do you see how consistent that is? It comes from an evolutionary mindset. The lady who started Planned Parenthood, Margaret Sanger, hardcore evolutionist, also a eugenicist. She started Planned Parenthood for the, for the specific purpose of weeding out the African-American population in the United States. She thought she could sterilize enough and breed them out that they would stop producing. Because it was believed at that time that they were a lower form of humanity that didn't deserve to move on. If you don't believe me, check out her own quotes. She said it multiple times. It's a horrible reality, but that's the evolutionary paradigm. See, they're not necessarily heartless, evil people. They're just being consistent with their worldview. But now look at this. You got the, the Genesis paradigm. The universe and everything in it was brought into existence through the intentional will of our creator God as outlined in the first chapters of the book of Genesis. That's part of the foundation of our faith. When you look at this, life is the product of purposeful intent and design. Purposeful. That means all life has meaning and value. All life. Small puppy, big human. Doesn't matter. All life has value. All life has a purpose. And all life has a hope for eternity with our creator. But here's the problem. You're not going to find that hope. You're not going to find that purpose without the creator. 
you have to find the creator to find your purpose. You're not going to bump into it walking down the road. So it comes down to two choices. You can believe the word of God or you can believe the word of man. I don't know if you realize this, but mankind does not have a good track record of making good decisions. All you got to do is look at Washington and figure that one out. All right? These two paradigms represent two completely different schools of thought, and both have profound implications on life and decision-making. Now, the argument has actually become so heated that for the evolutionary side of things, they have uh, started pursuing legal action about 40 years ago, uh, and they formed an organization called the National Academy of Sciences, this is their paper on science and creationism. You notice they say creationism. Do me a favor. If you're ever talking about science and creation, don't put ism. The way this is worded is science is true and creationism, which is nothing more than a belief. That's what an ism is. It's a belief. It should be scientism and creation than any, more than anything else. And in here, they declare... so. When it comes to science, when you get out of college and you, you're going through the, through the sciences, you don't just get a job as a scientist. Those jobs don't exist. You go into a field, a field of study, and if you want to do independent research, you've got to get money. You've got to get grant money. You've got to get published. This organization is one of the sole organizations that handles all the publications, all the textbooks, the things that are in your science textbooks. These people decide what's in there. This is one of their statements. The National Academy of Science and the National Association of Science Teachers have both published comments to refuse, listen, to refuse recognition of any theories, research, or discoveries that contradict or refute Darwinism. This is their public statement. It doesn't matter if you can prove to me that Darwinism is wrong. You can show me exactly where it's wrong. They will refuse your funding. They will refuse your publications, and you will not, you will not get published. You will not get viewed. You will not get anything. You can't go anywhere because they control the narrative. And they are all evolutionists. They are all atheists. This is our world. Now, an interesting part is that one of the claims of of the evolutionary side of the aisle is that they are open to discuss any research into life's origins. We're open. Science is open. Um, No, no, I just read you that part. They're not. They're not open. They also claim that there is a total consensus in the scientific community that Darwinism is absolutely irrefutable. I want to show you two things here. This is called the Darwin List. This has started out as a group of a thousand scientists signing a statement dissenting from Darwinism. Published scientists all over the world, all PhDs, by the way. You cannot be on the list if you're not a PhD, which means you've been published. To be a PhD, you have to be published. Now, here's the funny thing. They've all said Darwinism's got to go. Every one of them. Darwinism has failed. It is, a, it is a debunked theory. It can't happen. Now, this is the actual list. I was able to get it from their website. They have it on their website so that you can't print it, but when you're computer savvy, you can find a way. <laughs> now, this is a paper that was uh, released in April of this year, April 4th, uh, talking about Darwinism. And the title of the paper is Neo-Darwinism Must Mutate to Survive. 
These are not Christians. Oh, and by the way, the Darwin list, they're not Christians. Some of them are Muslim. Some of them are atheist. Most of them are agnostic. They just simply believe on scientific grounds Darwinism is an untenable idea. It cannot support itself any longer. Now, this is a slightly different list. These are quotes from evolutionary scientists, published evolutionary scientists, debunking Darwinism. These are from their own published works. Here's a couple, just because it's fun. Scientists at the forefront of inquiry, means on the edge of new discovery, have put a knife to classical Darwinism. Darwinism. They have not gone public with the news, but have kept it to their technical papers and inner councils. Hmm, how about this one? A growing number of respectable scientists are defecting from the evolutionary camp. Moreover, the most, uh, for the most part, these experts have abandoned Darwinism, not on the basis of religious faith, faith or biblical persuasion, but on strictly scientific grounds, and in some cases, regretfully. This comes from Dr. Wolfgang Smith, physicist and mathematician. How about this one? It must be uh, it must be significant that nearly all evolutionary stories I learned as a student have now been debunked. That's Dr. Derek V. Ager, Department of Geology, the Imperial College of London, one of the most prestigious organizations in the world. Uh, there's a few more, uh, but we don't need to get into all of them tonight, right? I collect this stuff. Every time I bring home a new piece of paper or new, uh, to, to, to put away, my wife's like, oh, goodness, you're really still doing that? Yep, still doing it. It's the way it works. Every area of modern science, and I literally mean this, every single area of modern science are making discoveries that have, uh, that have made Darwinism impossible to support. Every single area of science. The problem is they can't get published. One of the most significant organizations is called uh, the Discovery Institute. It's out in Seattle. Um, if you've ever seen the movie uh, Expelled, there's a little bit of a mention, uh, uh, mention of them in there. And the problem is this. When you get rid of Darwin, spontaneous generation, there's only one thing left. That's the problem. There's only one thing left. Special creation. Intelligent design. Now, intelligent design isn't a Christian argument. It's actually an agnostic argument. But the, the thing is, you can't have an intelligent design without an intelligent designer. It means that someone put this little meat bag that I live in together. Could have given me a bigger bag. That would have been fine. <laughs> I st- you know, I, was, I have been the same size since seventh grade. When I walked into school seventh grade, the football teacher was like, me's going to be a monster can't wait for him to grow up. I haven't grown a millimeter vertically. <laughs> My borders have been expanded, but other than that, it's all good. It's just not fair. Now, for many Christians and many Christian leaders, evolution is a non-issue. They don't want to, have it, they don't want to get into it because it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. And to be honest, it doesn't. How many of you read this in your Bible? Whoops. Hold on. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, uh, raised him from the grave, and a literal six-day creation, and the flood of Noah's day. Isn't that in your Bible? No, it's not what it says. 
Confess with your mouth to Jesus Lord and believe in uh, your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Do you have to believe in creation to be saved? No. So what's the big deal? The problem is, who's Jesus? How do you know who Jesus is? It's your Bible, right? Is there any other piece of literature anywhere in the world that tells you anything about Jesus? No. So if the Bible is not authoritative, if it's not true from cover to cover, Lucy, <laughs> we got some explaining to do, right? We have a problem. And what this has done, this has led many people in the church, and I mean big name leaders, to walk away from Genesis, to embrace alternate thinking. And when that door opens, that is how you end up with denominations that embrace homosexuality, denominations that embrace, embrace other uh, like trans arguments. Um, uh, pick one any controversial issue that you have here. No, it's all fine because God is love. No, but God gets to define love. And God gets to define right and wrong. Right? Now, the clip I'm going to show you here is Andy Stanley. How many people you know who Andy Stanley is? Charles Stanley's son. He pastors an extremely large church in Atlanta, Georgia. He's one of the most influential pastors in the world today. He has openly homosexual people serving on his children's ministry. He also hires secular musicians for their worship team, people who are literally playing in a bar Saturday night and then worshiping God on Sunday morning because he wants good music. Because, you know, those Christians can't play the guitar. I mean, you know, if you want good music, you got to go to the bars. You can't go to the churches. <laughs> Come on. But this is one of the things that he started talking about, the authority of Scripture, because he denies Genesis and the Old Testament. And shortly after this clip I'm going to show you, he did a message in his church, and I encourage you to look this up, where he encourages you to not follow the Ten Commandments because they're not about you. The message, actually, he actually says in it, thou shalt not follow the Ten Commandments. I'm not kidding. Look it up for yourself. But this clip is good enough for now. I think that we have done previous generations, especially of children and high school students, a terrible disservice by the way we talk about the Bible. I remember my freshman English class at Georgia State University. We were talking about literature. It was a, it was a literature class, and one of the pieces of literature was the Bible. And my teacher was not an anti-religious person, but began to talk about the myth, the creation myth, other creation myths. And without meaning to, began to slowly dismantle the faith of every single person in there who had grown up in church. When she was finished, all of us were convinced that there are many creation myths. The story of Adam and Eve is a creation myth. It's one of many. Let's move on to the next topic. Well, because of the way the scripture had been presented to me and probably everybody in that class, it's a house of cards. So as soon as you pull out one piece of the Bible to say, this is a myth, well, then immediately it's like, well, what else in there is myth? Mm -hmm. The foundation of our faith is not the scripture. The foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. The foundation of our faith is something that happened in history. And the issue is always, who is Jesus? That's the foundation of our faith is not the scriptures. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. He says, the, the, the question is, who is Jesus? Let's go back to the question I asked you a few minutes ago. Can you know who Jesus is without the scriptures? Yeah. 
No. Do you even know why Jesus came and died on the cross without the scriptures? No. Everything we know about Christ, everything we know about salvation, everything we know about sin and righteousness and morality, we learn from the scriptures. This is such a common message in the churches today. It's really disheartening. When you realize that there are churches out there right now filled with people who have almost no chance to hear the real gospel because they're too busy listening to a motivational message by someone who won't confront sin because they're more interested in the God of love. It's a sad, sad issue, but it is the reality. So you think about this. How do we know that Jesus was born? Scripture, right? How do we know Jesus died? Scripture. How do we know he rose from the dead? That's weird. It almost sounds like what you're saying is that the foundation of our faith is the Scriptures, you zealots, you Bible-thumbing religious people. Good for you. The foundation of our faith is absolutely the infallibility and reliability of the Word of God. Now, check this out. So one of the things that I, 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 I this is actually the first message in a, ser- in a conference series when I normally, I'll, I'll do a conference in different places. This is the first message that I give. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that I've been able to do through this process, I have a website called john547.com. And, and this is what John 547 says. Oh, sorry. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. Okay, stop right there. Which books did Moses write? I'm pretty sure Genesis was on there, right? Oh, okay. So, uh, who's saying this? I should have done this in red, just to make it really simple. (laughs) This is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. He's either lying or he's not. He says, "If if you believed Moses, you'd believe me, because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Hmm... Lucy, <laughs> here we go again. Now check this out. Here's uh, how many of you love end times. Everyone loves end times, right? Yeah. Now you think about this. Almost all of the end times prophecies found in the New Testament speak of one thing: the failure of the church, not the return of Christ. The failure of the church. How many of you love the end times now? Right? Yeah. It's really awesome. Yay! I hope we all fail so Jesus can't come back. Yeah. Now check this out. Second Peter three, three through seven, warns us of something that will happen towards the end times. Check this out. First, be aware of this: scoffers will come in the last days to scoff, because that's what scoffers do. They scoff, living according to their own desires, saying, "Where is the promise of His coming? Coming ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They willfully ignore this. Willfully ignore this." Long ago, the heavens and the earth were brought about from water. (gasps) We're back to Genesis again. And through the water, by the word of God, through these waters, the word of that, the world of that time perished and it was flooded. There are two things that the church will willfully ignore towards the end days while the church is falling away from the grace of God. That God created the world and he flooded it. 
biblical creation and the flood of Noah's day will be rejected by the church towards the end times. Uh, yeah. I think we're getting there. I think this is starting to happen. This is annoying. Now check this out. This is from prominent atheist Richard Dawkins. Getting religious people to deny any form of supernatural creation and embrace evolution is the first step in getting them to walk away from their religious beliefs altogether. This is absolutely true. Richard Dawkins started an organization called The Clergy Project. The Clergy Project is there for ministers who don't want to be ministers because they don't believe in God anymore, but they went to seminary school and they're so far in debt they can't, they can't do anything, so they have to stay in the pulpit and preach things they don't believe. The Clergy Project supports them while they go back to school to get a different degree so they can walk away from their faith. They have all kinds of business. Think about it. Pulpits around the world being filled by people who don't believe in God, but they're so far in debt from their seminary education, they can't leave it. Who wants to go to that church? It happens. It happens. So for about the last 20 years, research has shown us that about 75% of young people in the church are leaving the church within a few months after graduating high school. Now, for a long time, people thought that, that was, they were going away to college and the college was beating the Bible out of them and it was horrible. Now, in the American Baptist Church, that number is 88%. That's their published numbers, 88%. That's 9 out of 10 kids are leaving the church never to return within a few months of graduation. Now, one of the things that Answers in Genesis did is they published another set of studies and they did this very intentionally. They did a few thousand people around the country. And these were 20-somethings who had left the church. And they made it very specific. You had to have grown up in a conservative Christian church to be part of the study. Okay? And they asked, what led you away? Why? They weren't trying to be confrontational or anything. They just wanted to know, what is it that caused you to walk away from the church? And there were 10 things that basically they came up with in this process. Number 10 was, couldn't find their denomination. Talk about a lame excuse. How about this one? The Bible is no longer relevant to life. God would never condemn people to hell. Doesn't seem like they were taught much in, in, in church, does it? How about this? Church is not relevant to personal growth. Here's my favorite one. It's too far. I don't know if people realize this, but we still have cars. And we've had them for a while now. You know, there, there's ways to do this. Number five, self-righteous people in a church. Okay, moving right along. Because um, we know that's true, right? Uh, and obviously, if that's their reason, they're one of them. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, number four, too political. Three, hypocrisy of leaders. Two, legalism. One, boring service. <laughs> Yay! Now, that's, that's, that's not the greatest news in the world, Right? But the thing that jumped out at me when I started looking at this, and I've looked at other studies and they come up with almost the same reasoning, is the complete disregard for the authority of God's word. Complete disregard for it. Church is hard, and it messes with the way that I want to live, right? Christians aren't, per aren't perfect enough. Now, one of the other things that they asked this particular survey that I think is more telling and more relevant to our conversation today was what made you begin to, when, I'm sorry, when did you begin to doubt the Bible? 
When did you begin to doubt the authority of God's word? These are what came up. 39.8% said middle school was when they started doubting scripture. Middle school. This is before seventh grade. Okay. 43.7 high school. Only 10% was college. I want you to think about this. These are kids who are in the public school system for 12 of the first 18 years of their life. These are kids in youth group. These are kids on the worship team. These are kids helping out at all kinds of different things, going to events, raising their hands in worship, who doubt the word of God because of what they're being taught in the public school system about the origins of life. I couldn't be, have been created by God because the guy in the lab coat says that I came from a monkey. Right? Yeah, alarms should be going off. When asked what role the science textbook played in their doubting the Bible, the overwhelming result was that that was almost the primary, uh, for almost all of them, that was the primary reason, was their, was their exposure to evolutionary biology. And here's the problem. The majority of them asked help from their church leaders and from their family. They asked for answers. Can you help me reconcile this issue? And they didn't get answers. What they got was just trust in Jesus. When the church says just trust in Jesus, but the atheist says, I have an answer you can see, you can touch, you can feel, you can go to the museum and see it, you can do experiments with it, trust me because I can show it to you because those people only have faith and faith is a fairy tale. When you're just growing up, that is reasonable. For people who have known Christ and experienced Christ and you've actually had to live life, you can get past that. But a high schooler has almost no chance. They literally have 90% against. Nine out of 10 of them are going to leave because the church doesn't have answers to the questions of the day. Where did I come from? How How do I know my life has meaning? How do I know the difference between right and wrong? What happens when I die? We've got to have answers to these questions if we want these kids to be the next generation of the church. We're moving into a day and age where there is more information in that little phone in their back pocket than has ever been available to anyone in all of history. And almost all of it is going to direct them to Darwin. Very small amounts will direct them to Christ. When they say, How did I, where did life begin? They're always going to be directed to Darwin. They should be able to get those answers. We are the ones, what does the Bible say? The older shall instruct the younger. This is our job. We've got to do it well.